Today's the first Sunday after Christmas, and I suspect that the energy and anticipation that we all felt during Advent may have been replaced by the joys and the memories of Christmas Day, mixed with a heavy measure of fatigue and perhaps some relief that it's all over. If we're feeling this way, imagine how Mary and Joseph must have felt after Jesus' birth. The shepherds and the angels and the heavenly host have all gone, and Mary and Joseph have a son to raise, religious obligations to keep, and a trip back to Nazareth to make. Life goes on for them as it does for us. Listen now to the conclusion of the story of Jesus' birth as it's told in the Gospel of Luke. And imagine yourself in the scene. We're in Jerusalem in the massive, spectacular temple on the top of Mount Zion, surrounded by immense walls and mammoth pillars. A wide stone stairway leads up the slope to the public entrance point. And on the stairway, we see a young, weary couple carrying their child up to the courtyard, in which hundreds of Jews from all over the world, as well as priests, temple musicians, and others are gathered to worship, to offer sacrifices, or to pray. Here's how Luke records that scene. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male must be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, and her glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child 
is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She'd never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything that was required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The word of the Lord. I've always been intrigued by this story from Luke, the master storyteller. As it begins, things seem to have settled down into more human rhythms following the birth of a child. After a prescribed period of time, Mary and Joseph have come to the temple in Jerusalem to acknowledge and honor their faith commitments, not unlike Deb and Ryan, who rejoiced at the birth of their daughter Kate and have brought her today to celebrate her baptism to initiate her into our life together in the church. But in our experience, the parents and the baby are usually the ones who receive gifts, not ones who give them. As observant Jews, Mary and Joseph knew that after a child was born, the ritual observances of the Law of Moses would include circumcision, at eight days old, which marked a male child's acceptance into the covenant community, and naming, which gave the child an identity. Jesus' name, Yeshua, which means God is salvation, was given to him at the announcement of his birth. And at the same time, it declared his future role as the savior of all people. Their obligation would also include the dedication of their son to God. In this ritual, they redeemed or bought back their firstborn at a price of five shekels of silver, remembering God's redeeming of Israel at the time of the Exodus. The final requirement was Mary's purification. After the birth of a male child, Mary would have been considered ceremonially unclean for seven days and was required to undergo purification during the next 33 days. During this time, she had not been able to take part in public worship or to touch any sacred object that had been dedicated to God. Now she and Joseph were in the temple to present their child and to offer a sacrifice 
to complete their ritual obligations. Different offerings were acceptable depending on the parents' economic circumstances. So Mary and Joseph offer a pair of turtle doves instead of a lamb. So we're reminded once again of their poverty. As the family enters the temple courtyard, the infant Jesus is certainly given a memorable welcome, though not from devoted students of the law like the Pharisees. There certainly wasn't a greeting committee from the high priests, the organized religion of the day. Priests and Pharisees were never going to welcome Jesus into their circle because they had invested so much energy in their way of doing things that they couldn't allow anyone else to intrude. The jubilant welcome which the family experienced came from an unusual source two senior citizens, neither priest nor Pharisee, but both genuinely devout and utterly devoted, not to external religion, but to God. They were true seers who opened themselves to the coming of the Messiah and sincerely celebrated as they announced his arrival. Picture the elderly Simeon with the baby in his arms. Perhaps he was smiling and giddy with delight. Or perhaps he gazed at the baby with eyes so full of tears of joy that they overflowed onto his cheeks. Or do you imagine that he was lost in transfixed wonder as he gazed at the child? Whatever his reaction, the moment was enough for him. He had seen God's promised salvation, and now he could die in peace. He was not there by chance, but because he had been guided there by the Holy Spirit, who had promised the true rehabilitation of Israel. So what else could he do but offer a song of praise and a blessing. Close by, an old widow woman named Anna also broke into song. Like Simeon, she had almost given up hope for Israel. Yet the story of God's redemption had shaped her life in ways that had kept her open and attentive to God's presence and God's present work. She had spent her days and her nights in the temple in constant prayer and fasting, grieving over the pain of her people. Yet at the moment she saw the child, she began to praise God and to celebrate the coming of the promised Messiah in the child Jesus. The story goes on to say that Mary and Joseph were amazed at Simeon's song. God had already revealed the truth of his son to them, but now others knew the truth. God was not keeping the news a secret. So they may have been puzzled by old Simeon's words, but perhaps not entirely surprised. After all, 
angels and others had been saying things like this to them even before Jesus was born. For them, it was one more prophecy to ponder. Simeon and Anna recognized the infant Jesus at the beginning of a new age, one in which the old order would be turned upside down. And they invited the whole community to respond. Their witness speaks now through the centuries to us. How will we respond? Something indeed happened in the birth of Jesus. Now, we know that salvation, we know what salvation looks like in the face and the body of a human being, Jesus. Son of Mary, Son of God. God came into the world and comes to us today to live as we live, to experience life with us in all its wonder and sorrow, and to lead us to a new appreciation of what it means to be truly human. Something has been born among us that not only will but has already altered the course of human history. The birth of Jesus is the beginning of a real revolution. Can we possibly believe that we can be like the devout seers, Simeon and Anna, who spent their lifetimes waiting, faithfully looking for the fulfillment of God's promised kingdom? I like that word, seer. A seer looks beyond the superficial to the deeper realm of things. Through the religious and the secular stuff of society to the real heart of the matter. The seer dares to look insightfully and to tell it as it really is. Do you consider yourself a seer? Will baby Kate be a seer? Throughout Advent, we too have waited and watched for the coming of Christ into our lives and into our world. But now that he's here, do we recognize him? Or does our awareness motivate us to live revolutionary lives? Are we among those like many priests and Pharisees who have invested so much of ourselves in other things, either religious or secular, that we resent this Jesus who will come confront and upset our preferred way of seeing and doing things? Are we among the seers who know that the love of Jesus Christ includes all people? That there are no outsiders, no one we can despise or treat as unworthy. Here we sit on the verge of a new year, and it seems that the world is already resuming its accustomed form. Radio stations have dropped the carols, 
and the stores are already replacing the garlands and the lights with clearance signs and sales and even valentines. After the gentleness of Christmas Eve, the world and the light of day seems largely unsaved and unchanged. Have we spent a lot of energy on empty hopes and misguided dreams? No. God in Christ says otherwise. On this first Sunday of Christmas tide, we are reminded that our calling as believers is to live Christmas all year long, to keep living the truth of God's coming every day we are on earth by wanting what God wants. Isaiah's vision reminds us that our Creator intends for all people to have a decent life. The good things in life are for all of us, and as long as they are divided with equity, we will live as one. We know that human life is enriched by connections and impoverished by isolation, and that our economic systems and our governments and our international relations will only function for the common good when they enhance the local and global connections that God intends. Jesus grew and became strong and wise. And he sent, spent his entire ministry telling us what God wants. God wants us to live with such hope that we forgive even those who wrong us. God wants us to seek peace even with our enemies. God wants us to sacrifice our own wants for the needs of the poor and the downtrodden. God wants us to tell Kate and all our children of the good news of Jesus Christ as they grow up. And God wants us to work to make the world a place of justice, faith, love, healing, and a true joy. The world without God doesn't want any of these things and resents those who do. Jesus' call is a radical one, but it's what God wants. And if we are to follow Jesus, we are called to want what God wants all year long. As we begin a new year, let us commit ourselves to wanting what God wants. Every day, in every decision, every word, every deed, and every moment. And in our faithful, patient wanting and living, may we know the peace and joy that Simeon and Anna found as they saw their Savior. Christ, our Savior, is born. Live the joy. Hallelujah. Amen.